We should get started. My name is John Hamry. Uh, I'm uh, the president here at CSIS. I'm uh, really delighted to have all of you here, and I'm especially pleased to have our two colleagues join us today for this, what I think is an extraordinarily interesting and important discussion. Uh, two things are happening here today. You don't know this, but I, I can't help but uh, share it with you. Uh, we have been trying for a considerable period of time to develop an important, I say, practice here at CSIS to look at global public health. Uh, we consider it to be an astoundingly important thing for the world. Uh, you know, almost all of the great problems in the world now are horizontal, and all of the governments are vertical. You know, I mean, and, and, and so if you're trying to deal with a problem, especially like health, it's, you can't deal with it on a nation-state basis. I mean, that means you're dealing with symptoms. You're not dealing with causes, you know. And so if we're going to, uh, if we're going to deal with this very serious problem that the world is facing, we've got to think about changing the way we think about how governments work together and deal with problems. This is a, a phenomenon, by the way, that applies to everything. I mean, all of the important problems in the world today are horizontal, you know. Uh, whether it's crime, whether it's pollution, global warming, terrorism, narcotics, everything. They're all horizontal problems, and all of our government structures are vertical, and we don't really know how to work together. I personally believe that uh, the best and easiest way to demonstrate to uh, politicians who by definition are parochial. I mean, they've been elected to come and represent people from a geographical region. So they are parochial, and you want them to be. I mean, they, they're supposed to be coming to Washington to do that. But the best way to tr lift them up to see the nature of this very complicated age and inspire them to think about new ways of governance is by looking at public health, international health. So this has an enormously important strategic uh, dimension for how we're all going to have to think about working government problems going forward. And so, so part of this, part of this session today is about that. Okay. And I'm very, we've, we've had this marvelous partnership with Kaiser. Kaiser has been more in the forefront of thinking about this than anybody I know. Uh, Gates Foundation as well, we've, we're a wonderful partnership. But today I want to especially say that Kaiser has been so instrumental in working with us and has done some enormously important pioneering work in this very way, putting the intellectual infrastructure together for this, which is really, really astounding. And so I'm, I'm very grateful to have this ongoing partnership. Especially, Jen, thank you for everything you've been working with us. I'm very happy for it. Now, there's, a, there's another dimension to to today's program, which, which goes beyond this, very, very important, and that is, is deals with a project we've had here at CSIS for the last uh, year and a half, which we've, we call our Smart Power Project. Now, it's, maybe it's too cutesy a term. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's frankly designed to intentionally key off of the soft power, hard power debate. In America, you know, we've. Uh, I've Joe and I, I have an enormous regard for Joe and I. Uh, I consider him to be an intellectual mentor in so many ways. So I don't say this in any criticism 
of him. But I never liked the term smart power or soft power. Because I mean let's let's be honest, what do you sell in America that's soft? Well it's Kleenex, you know, and you know, hand lotion. I mean, you know, you know, we don't sell anything in America that's hard. I mean, uh, you know, it was soft, you know, except it's these little things, you know. So the notion of soft power, I always felt was, it was very, it was certainly a gripping term, but I didn't think that it was something that would work. Uh, and in talking with Joe, Joe agrees that it also tends to be too much of a distortion. What America has always done was found a way to combine its hard and soft powers. I prefer to use the term powers of intimidation and powers of inspiration. And the powers of inspiration are infinitely more powerful, frankly, than the powers of intimidation. We're seeing that right now in Iraq. There isn't a military guy over in Iraq that says we're going to win with military muscle. Not a one. You know, and we've got to relearn that as a lesson for, for America. Now, there was a time when America enjoyed overwhelming uh, moral authority in the world. We've lost a lot of that, frankly. We lost a lot of it, I think, because of 9-11. I think 9-11 turned us from being a confident and proud country into a frightened and an angry country. And we've reacted in ways that have really turned off a lot of people in the world. I don't think it's, I think America's character is still quite buoyant. Americans want to solve problems and they want to help people in solving problems. And I can't think of a better way to do that than by making global public health an American agenda. Nothing would help America's reputation in the world more than to embrace this cause. So this is a, an important session. This is a session where we're thinking about the very strategic nature by which governments are going to work and figure out how to make, how to get their arms around big problems going forward. And it's a session to figure out how does America earn its way back uh, to be a respected leader in the world. Now to do that, um, we brought in the best. And I must tell you, I'm so, uh, so pleased that this would be an opportunity for Kaiser and Pew to roll out some very, very important work that they've been doing. And I'm going to let Steve uh, Morrison take the lead here in introducing our session, introducing our panelists. I just do want to say a, a very, very deep thank you to Andrew and Molly for being with us today. You're going to do an enormous amount of good for this country today. Thank you. Steve, take it away. Good morning. Um, I'm Steve Morrison um, from CSIS. I direct the Africa Program and the HIV-AIDS Task Force here at CSIS. Um, we have, for six years now, worked very closely and productively in partnership with the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is one of our key partners, and we rely on them for many, many things. Jennifer Cates has been a wonderful partner uh, over these last several years. And many of the people that are here in the room, Matt James, Alicia Carvalho, Shobana, have, have contributed in, in very valuable ways to our work, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, we're, we were disappointed that Drew became ill, Drew Altman, the President's CEO, and, and, and was unable to join us, and we will hold him accountable to come back and deliver the next address. And we were thrilled when Molly Ann 
Uh, Brody was available because she is, as John has emphasized, a renowned expert, and I'll introduce her in a moment. I want to say just a couple of words. Thanks to Matt Wills and Kate Hoffler from CSIS and Rob Graham uh, and, of course, Jennifer uh, Cates from, from Kaiser for, for helping us put all of this together. And thanks to John Hamry for moving the Smart Power Commission forward and for being with us today and for really being the inspiration behind this very broad vision and the follow-on. And this is part of the, the report which you have available gives a high emphasis to global public health as one of the five critical uh, areas where, uh, uh, where things have been learned and where the future really uh, lies in terms of, of, of additional U.S. investments and energy in, in restoring America's standing in the world. Uh, we thought that uh, uh, the, the availability of Andrew Kohut and, 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 and Molly Brody and this new survey to come and speak uh, was, was fortuitous timing in being able to come forward and talk about what is really a critical area that we have not known much about, which is what is that opinion climate out there in the world, in the developing country, in that broad and diverse community of developing countries, how do people in those communities feel about health? And how are they looking at the different dimensions as against other stresses or threats or factors in their lives? And how do they view the donor community, and specifically, and especially, the United States? We're at the end of a period of unprecedented investment and engagement by the US in global public health, uh, particularly, I mean, most visibly in the President's Emergency Plan on AIDS Relief, uh, the malaria initiative and other things. But we don't know until now. We have known very little, far too little, about how we, this may be shaping opinion of the United States. Uh, we know some of the facts in terms of people served, reached, services delivered, but the opinion climate is a critical dimension. And, and you've really taken the lead here in putting an instrument together and putting a focus on that and beginning to help us think about how has opinion evolved in this period and what does this tell us about the future and, the, and the, the kinds of expertise and kinds of engagement and payoff that may come from further engagement uh, in these critical areas of trying to improve the health existence of, of people in developing countries. Uh, we, as John emphasized, here at CSIS we're a foreign policy institution. Uh, we deal with a range of issues, many of them on the hard side of the line. Uh, the um, uh, global public health is something that we see as, as, as having graduated into the sort of foreign policy mainstream uh, and, and, and is becoming something that is understood by a broader range of foreign policy expertise and leaders as something that uh, requires careful cultivation, requires a heavy diplomatic investment, requires a long-term vision. And we think that uh, blending the communities of pu global public health expertise opinion expertise with foreign policy leadership becomes a very important interface in thinking in our way as we look forward. Um, so we're thrilled to, to have you here to present. What we're going to do is I'll introduce Molly and Andrew uh, very briefly and then ask them to present the results of this most recent work. We'll have a bit of a roundtable discussion and then we'll open it to you for, for comments and questions. Um, Andrew is our first speaker, correct? Andrew Kohut is the president of the Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C., 
and also acts as director of the Pew Research Center for the People in the Press, which was formerly the Times uh, Mirror Center for the People in the Press, and the Pew Global Attitudes Project. Those of you who have watched over the last several years the sort of evolving discussion around how have global opinions shifted in the post-9-11 or post-Iraq period, it's always Andrew that is out in front telling us what we should know or what we're discovering. And you've done an amazing amount of work in helping us focus on the, the tough period that we're in, in terms of America's standing in the world. Uh, and um, he was president from 79 to 89 of the Gallup organization, uh, founded thereafter the Princeton Survey Research Group, and served as founding director of surveys for the Times Mirror Center. There's, there, there are few individuals in America today who can point back to having had such a strong leadership position in driving forward over the last several decades uh, the, 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 the institutional apparatus in America for capturing opinion, opinion survey work. Uh, our other star witness here today is Molly Brody, who's Vice President, Director of Public Opinion and Media Research at the Kaiser Family Foundation, where she directs a variety of projects that examine the intersection of public knowledge uh, and opinion and public policy um, she is a PhD in, in health policy from Harvard University with a master's in health policy and management from the School of Public Health at Harvard. Um, she, her research focus on public opinion and knowledge and the role of political institutions as they relate to health policy is really at that very intersection of policy, opinion, health interventions, which is becoming so important and something that we rely on you as, a, as our partner really to help inform us, because we don't have that. We don't carry these, 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 these great talents and expertise internally. And so thank you both uh, for being with us. And Andrew, we want, we'll do a one-two presentation here, and then we'll open the floor. Thank, <coughs> excuse me. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, we were very happy to partner with, um, with Kaiser in exploring uh, opinions about health issues in this latest round of the uh, Pew Global Attitudes Project. Uh, we've interviewed over, since 2002, over 165,000 people in 60 countries. We do a survey uh, or two sometimes a year. Uh, most of this survey, what we're best known for is dealing with opinions about geopolitical issues. We've been the principal, sadly, been the principal chroniclers of the rise of anti-Americanism in this decade. But the first survey that we did in 2000, which was a survey of uh, 43 countries, uh, had a lot of material in it about how people feel about their lives, how they feel about their countries, how they feel about their institutions. Uh, and the most recent survey, uh, the one that we completed this year in 47 countries, also had uh, more than the geopolitical focus, more than the focus on how do you feel about America or the war on terrorism? And had a lot of questions about uh, how people judge their lives, how they judge their countries, and, and, uh, and so on. So uh, the partnership with, with, with Kaiser was a natural one because healthcare, uh, as we found in the first survey, was such an important consideration when you ask people about the problems that confront the world, confront their countries, and certainly when you ask people about the problems that they face in their, in their own lives. Uh, let me just show you. Um, uh, the country, we did 45,000 interviews in all of these countries. Uh, we put this up mostly to impress you. Uh-oh. I think it's Mayor Giuliani's wife. 
<laughs> Would you just <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Um, sorry, okay. <laughs> Back to the presentation. Uh, uh, we, we did uh, interviews in, in, uh, 40, in uh, 47 countries, 45,000 interviews, and perhaps as, as impressive as the number of interviews is the fact that we did these, uh, we did these polls in, in over 70 different languages and dialects. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of thought and attention goes into the preparation of these surveys, the questions are, are taken from English into the native languages, then back from the native languages into English to make sure that they're well understood. These are very rigorous surveys. They're not five or six questions on cooperative surveys. They're 40-minute interviews in, in many cases. Um, when we ask people about uh, health care uh, and we ask people about the problems that they confront both uh, they, as they look at the world and they look at the countries, health care, uh, certainly comes to the top of the list, and it most often comes to the top of the list in uh, Africa. The spread of, when we ask people to rate 11 uh, problems that their country face, uh, the 10 African countries in which we did surveys, the median response on the spread of uh, HIV and other infectious disease ranked number one uh, in, in, in this region. Uh, but there is less than a consensus across different regions. In, in Latin America, crime ranked number one. That was the case in Asia as well. In uh, the former Soviet uh, countries, both Eastern Europe and in the Soviet former Soviet Empire itself, uh, corruption uh, loomed the largest in the Middle East. Not surprisingly, terrorism was ranked number one. And in Western Europe, environmental concerns. Um, there is some trend in uh, some changes in opinion over the past five years, but the profile looked very similar fi uh, five years ago. As you can see, the, um, although uh, health, health issues, HIV and other spread of other infectious diseases, uh, did not rank number one in Latin America, Asia, Central Europe, and other places, it was among the top five of of the, 11 issue, of the 11 issues we tested in all of the other regions save Western Europe. Uh, crime uh, rivals, uh, certainly rivals health care globally. Uh, freedom from uh, security, feeling free of threats, both in response to the closed-ended questions and the open-ended questions that we ask, rank very high in all parts of the world, uh, both uh, both in, in advanced nations, middle-income countries, and emerging nations. Um, if we look a little more closely about, at Africa, uh, in seven of the countries uh, that we did our surveys, uh, HIV and other, the spread of HIV and other AIDS and, and AIDS and, and other diseases rank uh, as the number one issue. The exceptions are in South Africa, where crime is the most pressing problem. In fact, in South Africa, crime is the most pressing problem of any, compared to any other place in the world. The numbers are highest on, on crime. Uh, corruption in Nigeria, that was, this poll was taken soon after the election. Uh, that was very contentious in Nigeria and in Mali, it's education. 
uh, but even in South Africa and um, um, Nigeria and Mali, uh, concern about uh, health issues are, 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 relative, are relatively high. I think we'll skip over this and go to um, the next point is that I'd like to make is that more generally, this poll uh, found that compared to five years ago, people all around the world, but especially in, in middle-income countries and emerging countries, were happier with their lives. Uh, they were more satisfied with their incomes. Uh, they had a greater sense of personal progress. And you can see that the median uh, of people, the median of uh, percent rating of life positively on a 10-point scale was 59% in Latin America this year compared to 44% um, uh, five years ago. And in Eastern Europe, you see similar uh, changes. Uh, it's noteworthy that in US, US, the U.S. and Western Europe, you see almost no change, just about the same as we found five years ago. In Asia, there's an increase in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, there's a smaller increase. These regional medians hide a lot of detail, but I'll show you some of the detail. In any event, when we first saw these findings, we were very puzzled by them until uh, we started talking to our economists and looked at the relationship between change and growth of domestic product and the, correla uh, the correlation between uh, these countries getting richer and peop the people becoming more satisfied and happier are very clear. Not only on this one measure, how happy, how satisfied are you in achieving your life goals, but in terms of questions about satisfaction with, uh, with, uh, with your income, feelings about the state of the nation. Uh, being richer, uh, your country being richer, affluence matters uh, to people. And in many respects, this poll uh, provide some pretty strong evidence that while there may be some downsides to globalization, there really is an upside as well. Um, the largest gains in satisfaction came in middle income and emerging nations. Look at uh, Brazil, 63% satisfied versus 43%. Mexico, 76 to 58%. Uh, the Ukraine, 32% to 18. I won't, I won't bore you reading the numbers. Uh, the most modest uh, changes, even though the GDP increases were pretty si significant, were in Africa. But even in Africa, you do see some positive changes, particularly when you get to the next uh, set of consequences that we saw in this survey uh, with respect to uh, these countries being richer. And that is, well, I'm sorry, here's the, here's the relationship to GDP change. And that is, uh, the impact on uh, people having enough money to afford the basics. In 2002, we found very large percentages of people saying that over the course of the past year, there was an occasion in which they could not afford health care. Uh, in Argentina, for example, it was 46 percent. In Ghana, it was 71 percent. Russia, 54 percent. Or food, uh, very, very large numbers. Uh, five years later, as people are more satisfied with their incomes uh, and life, one, uh, one reflection of that or one cause of that is fewer of them uh, say there were occasions in uh, their personal lives uh, in the past year where they could not afford the
these things. Uh, this is pretty substantial evidence that the uh, changes in GDP have a real positive, the gross changes in GDP have a real positive influence on the lives of ordinary people. So that's uh, one, I think, important set of, of information that, that we've been talking about. It's very good news. It's very positive news. Some have focused on it. But I have to tell you, this good news got a lot less attention uh, in the news media than all the bad news we wrote about the image of the United States. But who's surprised about that? Please raise your hand. Um, okay. Uh, one last thing before I turn the microphone here and the computer over to Molly is we shifted uh, from directly to to people's lives, and we ask them, uh, what are their greatest personal concerns? And uh, not too surprisingly, it was the economy stupid. In 45 out of 47 countries, people said financial concerns one way or another. But right behind, in two countries, uh, Germany and Sweden, healthcare was number one. It's interesting, two advanced nations, healthcare was number one. Two, two countries that have pretty good health care by, by, by object. We could talk about that maybe. Um, but in 33 countries, health care uh, was the number two issue. So health care was the only issue really to rival uh, the economy or economic issues, uh, personal financial issues when we ask people about their own lives. And on that note, I will turn it over to Molly Brody. Good morning, everyone. Uh, well, Andy just showed us that the top problems differed by region. Um, so if you are thinking about targeting aid or targeting inspiration, as John said, it's useful certainly to know that. But what we see in this chart is that public health priorities among low and middle income countries also varied pretty significantly um, by region as well. So you notice here that HIV is at the top for sub-Saharan Africa and for Asia. Uh, hunger and malnutrition is right at the top for Latin America and Middle East. And clean water, you can see, is sort of in the middle of the pack across the board. And certainly knowing these priorities can be useful in targeting aid. Now, some of you may be concerned at some of the issues that are ranked lower on this list, um, but I want to give you two reasons maybe not to be so concerned. But things like if you see where TB and malaria is, it's at the bottom of these public health priorities. Well, the first thing I'd say is that these are um, issues that are getting less attention, both um, in the media and in sort of public and government attention, um, than issues of HIV AIDS. So that's probably impacting these rankings at least a little bit. But the other thing, and it's a really important caveat when you look at a chart like this, is that in almost all of these countries, all nine health public health priorities were seen as very important and very significant problems to most of the population. So in fact, in 23 of the 34 countries, majority said that all nine of these were important um, priorities. And I think that really reflects these great perceived needs among the people in these countries and the myriad of concerns that are really facing the governments and international aid organizations as they work to try to help countries. Now, finally, we did find that people's perceptions of the biggest problems in their countries uh, match the real-life statistical indicators. So that is, people have a really good sense of what the challenges are in their countries, and they can be good judges of those. So, for example, you'll see here, on the previous slide, TB and malaria ranked seventh for sub-Saharan Africa overall. 
But in this slide, we're looking at the rankings by individual countries within that region. And you'll notice that in Tanzania, which had the second highest malaria rate for our surveyed countries, that issue ranked second. Similarly, in Kenya, which had the highest, the highest incidence of TB in our countries, it ranked fourth. Now, we had other evidence in the surveys. You can see this in your report. For example, prenatal care ranked the highest in the three countries that had the highest percentage of low birth weight babies. And I think if you take all this together, what it suggests to us is that global health is often a local phenomenon. That is that health priorities are appropriately different by their country and their country needs, but also that individuals have a really good sense of the real life challenges that are facing their countries. Now, this slide gives us a hint about uh, soft power, inspirational um, uh, effects that John and, and Steve were laying out at the beginning. And it's a point that I do want to make very softly, so to speak, because our survey wasn't necessarily designed to um, to discern and determine this. Um, our survey was really designed to keep, give people a voice and give the um, publics of these countries an opportunity to, to state their public health priorities and to understand better where people are. But what we did find is when we asked about wealthy nations and asked whether they were doing enough or not doing enough to help the poorer nations of the world in terms of economic de development, poverty, or health, we see that majorities in almost every nation think that wealthy nations need to do more. So that might not be so surprising. There's always the do more, wealthy nations aren't doing enough response. But what I think is more interesting and really certainly deserves some further exploration and at least some discussion is that the countries that have been the big recipients of development assistance or have been helped by highly visible disaster response efforts like in Indonesia, you see that people are much more likely to give wealthy nations credit for helping poorer ones than are the other countries. So the dark bars are where a third or more say that the wealthy nations are doing enough. So certainly across the board, people want to see wealthy nations do more. But it certainly appears that there might be at least some initial evidence in the survey suggesting that a soft power approach um, in the form of development assistance might actually register with people. Now, again, this project wasn't necessarily designed for the purpose, but we see some further hints when we look at our results on our questions about HIV AIDS in the countries. These are the countries with the highest prevalence of HIV. So these are the, the, the countries with the biggest epidemics. And you certainly see a sense that the epidemics are worse, and that's the bars on the uh, far left. On the other hand, you also see a sense that the countries are making a progress, making progress in terms of treatment and prevention, and those are the other two sets of bars. Now, it would be hard to believe that all the aid the countries have received from PEPFAR, the Global Fund, private donations, haven't played at least some role in this. Now, I can't tell you for sure that people are making the connection between these forms of AIDS and the progress they're seeing in their country. As, and they might make more of a connection when the international aid efforts would be more visible, like a case of a natural disaster. But certainly, you see the same sort of story here. And these countries are the, we've determined as our next wave countries. Those with large populations at risk for HIV and countries that are considering, considered at sort of the emerging or earlier stages of, a, of the epidemic. And you see the same similar picture with the general sense that their countries are making progress in HIV and prevention. Now, you see that's true for all the countries except for Russia and the Ukraine. Now, that could um, be due to a lack of real progress in those regions, or it could be a cultural predisposition. I'm certainly looking forward to hearing people who have worked um, heavily in those areas about their responses to that. Now, the one thing we really can say, I think, for sure from the survey is whether or not development assistance works as part of a soft power strategy, which, of course, would be interesting to hear your reactions. 
There is substantial support for more assistance from individuals in the wealthy nations themselves. So you can see here that large majorities in all the wealthy nations believe that wealthy nations should be doing more. Now this is consistent with other survey results that we've done where you, when you talk about very specific problems like poverty or health or HIV, you get a great deal of outpouring of support among the publics, the American public and publics in these wealthy nations to do more. What, what the challenge is, is often when you ask about something nebulous like foreign aid, which is very misunderstood and very unpopular in polling, you see that you don't get that level of support. But when we do ask about um, global health priorities or specific health priorities, people are actually very much on the page of wanting to make sure that wealthy nations can be more helpful across the globe. Um, so these are the results and some hints and hopefully lay out some good uh, discussion items for us to talk about. I really do want to thank Pew for being such an exceptional re research partner in this endeavor and to um, thank CSIS for creating this environment so that we could talk about these important findings. So thank you so much. It's a lot to digest. It's a very rich set of findings. Uh, perhaps we could just step back for a moment and ask each of you, what was, were there big surprises here in your view? Or was this sort of what you would have, what you would have anticipated going into this? Andrew? Uh, I was surprised. You need to turn that on. I was surprised by how much better people were feeling about their lives uh, and how strong the correlation was between uh, income, changes in income and changes mm -hmm. in people's circumstance. Uh, I'd never seen anything like that. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, I was mentioning uh, to uh, my colleague Richard Wyke, who, who, who's done a lot of the work on this, that. I was at Gallup in uh, the mid-70s um, when Dr. Gallup decided uh, that the world needed a global survey. And he convinced all of the affiliated companies to do a survey for free, all the uh, com companies that were affiliated with Gallup, to do a survey for free in um, 1974, 1975. And the questions that he, uh, in fact, these questions that we asked about have there been an occasion uh, in, uh, in uh, the past year where you didn't have enough money to do this, this, or this, were came from that survey. And I remember looking in 2002 that the results that we got in 2002 were not materially different in many places mm -hmm. uh, than they were back with what Gallup had gotten in 1974. And then when I see five years later, this major shift, mm -hmm. uh, wow, and I still want to understand more uh, what's going on, but clearly uh, the, economic, uh, the economic component of this is, is, is uh, quite apparent. But even though um, people are feeling better than they were in uh, absolute terms, the relative problems are still the same. The, the, they're, they're, they're not real differences in problems. I think I would say that I was um, somewhat surprised by the uh, the reality check 
of people in their countries. They really did seem to recognize the real life circumstances that were addressing their country specifically. And I think it's a cautious note to all of us that um, when we talk about global health, when we talk about global health problems, they really are a local phenomenon. And it sort of makes the case mm -hmm. for the importance of doing projects like this and making sure that the individual voices in individual countries um, are actually taken into, into account in discussions because things are different in, in, in each and every place. And it's just important to, to put those um, facts and to put those perceptions on the table as part of any discussion. John, did you have any Well, I, 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 I'd like to ask you both of you to maybe think out loud. And I don't expect you to have an answer for it. But uh, you know, it was very interesting in looking at these issues. Uh, Almost all of the primary concern issues are issues where the quality of government is, government isn't doing its job, where better government would make a difference. And yet I was struck so much by the way that wealth generation appears to be changing lives more effectively. And it gets to a debate that we're having in this country. I mean, is, is the old approach to foreign assistance through AID, the answer, or is it more through economic development? Are more people's lives going to be affected through economic development? We've got this tension in our own community between the Millennium Challenge Corporation and AID. I'm a little mindful as I'm going off to the swearing in of the new AID director here in, a, in about an hour. But what, what, does, what does this suggest to you when, when, as you're thinking about this as health professionals, especially where should we make this a priority? Should we be trying to boost economies because people are going to have more access to health care? Or do we make it a government priority to put in place infrastructure and even though it's not growing out of the economy? What, how do we think our way through that? You know, I think it's a, an important and tough question. And I think what the survey sort of reveals is these myriad of health needs. I mean, that's, I mean there's real challenges and there's a variety of them. And I think the fact that it was so hard for people to pick one priority over another and they really said to us we need this all really does put um, a challenge on government and a challenge on um, international aid organizations and, and folks who are trying to help solve these very problems. Um, I don't know if you... Well, I, I don't think it's either. I think it's both. Mm -hmm. the, it's, it's pretty clear um, that in this survey, if you were to do other kinds of uh, surveys, uh, uh, inspections and on, on, on the scene uh, reporting, that Africa lags uh, the development in Latin America or the development in Bulgaria or the Ukraine. Uh, and that has to do with the fact that the institutions there are not are not up to uh, providing uh, even in, in a richer economic climate are not up to providing uh, uh, translating greater wealth into better well-being for people, and so I don't think it's I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both, especially in Africa. Especially in Africa. Yeah, your figures on Africa. I mean, uh, they're they're sort of startling as far as the. The, 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 the very low level of, of satisfaction that you've recorded. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you've got some upward, some uptick, and you've got 
a strong measure of hope. Yeah, great to hope. A very strong measure of optimism. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the last 10 years, and much of this has just been recently documented by the World Bank mm -hmm. and others, you've got a pool of 14 or 15 small, medium-sized, Afri well-run African countries that have now had a decade of five and a half, six percent annual growth. Mm -hmm. So the argument that you're making, you know, much of the data that's coming out of the, the World Bank side of things is very consistent with what you're arguing. Mm -hmm. Uh, that uh, uh, much to our surprise, in Africa at the end of the 90s, there was enormous pessimism. There was a there was a, there was a spread of instability. There had been uh, uh, stalled or regressive growth, and now we're at a point the, towards the end of this decade where people are looking back and saying, you know, there's been some remarkable turnarounds, and they've been sustained, and they're fragile, very fragile. Uh, which is another thing that comes through your data, is mm -hmm. just how fragile much of this opinion climate is. Mm -hmm. uh, and how close to the heart these health issues are, are felt. They're very complicated in the way you break them down into eight or nine different categories, and they vary mm -hmm. very much, as you say, mm -hmm. by setting. But people feel these issues in a very personal and direct way. Uh, and, and it's highly sensitive to the economic growth issue, but it's also People are highly sensitive to what is happening externally, mm -hmm. to whether people are paying attention. Yeah, and we've talked about the correlation between greater satisfaction <laughs> and, and GDP, but in absolute terms, the correlation between relative income now and how you feel about your li life is really quite extraordinary. I mean, there are some, there are some deviations where people are pretty happy, even though they're they still will remain quite poor. But the one that really jumps out is China. Mm. I mean, the Chinese still rate their lives pretty poorly relative to, uh, to people in, it, in, in, uh, in Western Europe, the United States, or Canada. But their sense of we're on a roll uh, and their sense of uh, having made progress and looking, for, and looking forward to even more progress is just so pronounced. Uh, that's less so in other uh, uh, emerging nations. Yeah. I don't know if you can call China an emerging nation at this point, however. Could, could, could I, uh, again, I don't know, uh, I don't know the, the, whether the data would permit this or whether it was structured this way, but in many ways this relationship of wealth and well-being is treated as higher wealth is, is allowing for greater well-being. To what degree is it the other way around, that healthier people are able to be more productive people, and economies are strengthened because there's greater health. I mean, is, do you have a feel for this? Is, does it come out of the data, or do you have a feel for this as a profession? Well, certainly there's that evidence in, in this country, and, and back to your earlier question as well, that, um, that households that are doing better economically have more opportunity to stay healthier and to take better care of themselves and to, to access healthcare services and all those things. So there is certainly that relationship. And I think being, um, you and your family being able to maintain a level of health then allows you to be economic agents in the economy. And so I think it has to go together. They have to go together. Yeah, just to follow, there, there was this very interesting study that was done by the World Bank called uh, Measuring the Wealth of Nations. And such a high proportion of the wealth of nations is in intangible, really in quality of life issues, mm -hmm. in quality of government issues. 
uh, in the United States, it's estimated to be 83% of our wealth is tied up in this intangible. Mm -hmm. uh, and the question is whether this we could articulate a rationale uh, for public health that would be different than just simply a humanitarian gesture, that it really gets to the, the, the quality of dealing with all those other problems, mm -hmm. corruption and criminality, etc. if we had healthier people that were able to be more productive mm -hmm. and would be able to promote stronger societies because mm -hmm. they are, are more productive. And again, I don't know if the data suggests that because I realize this is a new and startling relationship you've uncovered. Yeah, I don't know if, I, I, if there's data that really speaks to it. One of the things that I guess should be mentioned here, um, not quite on your point, but it's well worth mentioning, is that the one change that we do see that is certainly related to health is greater concern uh, than five years ago about environmental issues and mm -hmm. environmental mm -hmm. concerns. I mean, that's the, one, that's the, mm -hmm. the way in which uh, pe uh, the way uh, that people are different in the, the way they look at the world, yeah. the way they look at their countries, yeah. and conceivably the way they look at their lives and think about health care. Mm -hmm. And you didn't track uh, in this uh, issues related to climate change and fear of that. We have a question. On you that. do. Yes. What was revealed about that? Uh, well, it showed, uh, I think, a substantial. Double check me, Richard. Did we we have a trend question on climate change. Just this time. Just this time. Substantial in, uh, substantial concerns about climate change. Uh, a tendency to um, blame the United States for the causes of it and lack of. Um, uh, doing anything about it. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the principal things that came out of the other end of the survey was that um, as this issue emerges and, and rivals other issues, the, uh, it really hurts, it's further hurting the image of America. Mm -hmm. America's seen as, mm -hmm. as uh, reluctant to deal with this issue. And the Americans, the American public, other, sur other surveys and theories have shown that the American public and the Chinese are much less uh, concerned, uh, intensely concerned about climate, uh, uh, environmental warming, uh, global warming than, than are mm -hmm. people in other parts mm -hmm. of the world. Mm -hmm. um, one quick comment and then one question and I'd like to open it before. But the, on the Russia and China pieces, the pessimism in Russia which was so staggering and then the sort of the, 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 the very modest levels of satisfaction gains in China relative to the growth. I mean, in both of those countries, you have a major crisis in the delivery of health and a, and a, and a, and a, government's, a, a government that is, making a, a major, is at an early point in trying to make major reforms mm -hmm. come into place. And a lot of confusion and skepticism around what is happening and what will the results be. And so it would be interesting to come back in a year or two years to sort of revisit in those very complex settings how that opinion climate has shifted because the, the, the dial's moving significantly and we're not sure where that will go. The question is, what's the, what's the uh, priority agenda for the future in, in using surveys of the kind that you've pursued? What's the next set of priorities on global public health in your view? What would you in another year or two years' time, what would you put your money on as the most important questions to get at? As follow, building on this, building on this. 
Well, I think it's going to be incredibly important to continue to track these perceptions and to see if the sense of optimism and progress that we saw in the HIV AIDS arena um, translates into some of these other global health arenas. Um, as the global health conversation shifts from being sort of focused on HIV AIDS to broader public health mm -hmm. concerns, it will be very interesting to see if there's that sense that there is actually progress being made in mm -hmm. the countries and in the, in the place where they, they, are, they are struggling with these other issues. So I think ongoing tracking and, and keeping the, the voice of the public in this di discussion is incredibly important. Just forward. to see whether this is a sustained this shift sustained or whether this is a spike is it a spike? And, and also, is, does it go beyond HIV-AIDS? Is mm -hmm. in some of these other areas, um, clean, delivering clean water, or dealing with hunger and malnutrition, as, um, as, as the global health agenda becomes broad mm -hmm. and targets the needs of certain mm -hmm. populations in certain countries, does that then translate into senses of progress among those publics? Mm -hmm. do, they, do they see that there are changes happening on the ground? Are there real, mm -hmm. really changes happening on the ground? I would, I would echo all of that. I, I, I think maybe it would be also interesting to, in the future, pursue uh, people's views about uh, the institutional response. I mean, as you were talking about China and Russia, uh, the institutional problems there are very different than the institutional problems in Africa, for example, and trying to understand the ways in which uh, people feel frustrated or satisfied uh, by the way government and uh, healthcare uh, the healthcare system in their, in their countries are working would be, an, I think, an yeah. interesting yeah. thing yeah. to do. Great. Why don't we open up for a quick comment and questions. We have uh, uh, microphones which we'd ask you to use, and we'd ask you to quickly identify yourself and then put your comment and question. We're going to bundle up three or four of these uh, right here, and then Ed, and then we have a question in the back there. And we'll, we'll do a couple of rounds, so if we don't get to you in the first cycle, be patient, please. Yes, ma'am. I'm Mitzi Wertheim. I run an energy seminar series funded by the Defense Department called Energy, a Conversation About Our National Addiction. In my looking at this issue for the last three years, I've come up with a number of different points of view. One is I have a new paradigm that I use. The first one is cause. The second one, no, the first one is context. The second one is cause. The third one is choices, and the fourth one is consequences. Every choice you make has consequences, second, third, fourth, fifth order consequences. I think we're a nation that thinks in terms of one-off solutions. Mm -hmm. Getting back to the health issue, I raised the question of population, which was brought to my attention by one of the very first geologists I talked to three years ago. As we talked about, and this gets back to what John was saying, everything's connected to everything else. I mean, energy and is clearly a horizontal issue. He said, Mitzi, there's one thing nobody will talk about. I said, what's that? He said, population. He said, we have a planet that can support people on the lifestyle they want to talk, they, that we now have. So when you're talking about this middle class lifestyle that can support two and a half to three billion people, we are now six and a half moving to seven on our way to 10. In a newscast I heard last week from NPR, they were saying if, we, if everybody lived at the standard of living in Holland, we would have to have three planets. If everyone lived at the standard of living in the US, we'd have to have six and a half. Okay. I mean, that's the essence. Yep. So my question is, when you think about all of this, how does population come into your okay. calculus? Great. Hold on that for one moment. Ed, and then we have a question in the back. 
Ed Berger, the Eurasian Medical Education Program. It is ironic that in the 1880s, <clears throat> Bismarck, in fact, chose health and social matters <clears throat> to highlight for political reasons to assure social stability. Mm -hmm. And the point about the lack of that in Russia, for example, is very clear. Even in the face of a high level of the foreign reserve, foreign, uh, foreign currency reserves and the stabilization fund, only recently has the Federation government <clears throat> been able to rouse the, <clears throat> the um, Ministry of Health to do something about it. And fortunately, Medvedev, heir apparent probably, is going to perhaps perform there. On the subject of the particular diseases and the people's response from it, from our 10 years of experience in the country, there is an enormous cynicism about the uh, issue of AIDS <clears throat> and stigma associated with it. The profession doesn't want to treat many of those who have it or those who are the risk, those at risk. And <clears throat> they ask the question, we know that it's uh, something else that kills most Russians overwhelmingly, 10 times as much as the combination of tuberculosis and AIDS. Why are you here, they say, to some of the, uh, of the foreign donors and actors over there. So couching what we do in AIDS in that setting, for example, I would propose is better done in a broader health assistance program. Thank you. Let's take a third comment in the back there, and then we'll come back for a second second. Sir? I'm Richard Skolnick. I'm the director of uh, international programs at the Population <coughs> Reference Bureau. I'm also the former director Speak of, up a bit, please. I'm Richard Skolnick. I'm the director of uh, international programs at the Population Reference Bureau, the former director for health at South Asia at the World Bank, and I'm also the author of an undergraduate text on global health. I wanted to clarify one point, and that is, does health make wealth or wealth make health, and whether or not there's data that speaks to this. There's an enormous amount of data that's been accumulated over the last 40 years or so, culminated probably in the Commission on Macroeconomics and Health, that says, yes, wealth makes health if you want to wait long enough. Uh, health certainly makes wealth at all levels, uh, and the kinds of low-cost, uh, highly effective interventions that can address tuberculosis control hookworm, other neglected tropical diseases are very good ways to speed health-making wealth, whether it's getting rid of hookworm in the United States, getting rid of hookworm overseas. But we know at the micro level, at the family level, at the community level, and at the national level, there's lots of very good evidence about this. And I'm sure any number of folks could point that uh, out if it would be helpful. Thank you. OK, why don't we come back to Molly and Andrew for some comments, and then we'll um, well, I'll start with the, the stigma issue. I mean, one of the questions we asked in the survey was whether their perception of stigma in the countries, and we saw a, a great deal of variation in that. But yes, of course, in, in many countries, people feel that there's a great deal of stigma still attached to the disease. In fact, the foundation has been working um, for, um, I don't know, Jen, if you want to say more about our work in, in Russia in, in, in trying to change the um, perceptions about stigma through mass media and through other ap approaches to try to actually address that. But it's one of those um, tough parts of dealing with many of these specific diseases. And you're right, as you broaden things out, it makes things less um, contentious. Um, on the population question, that's an interesting one. One of the issues with respect to that in a global context is that um, things are very different in different places. You go to Europe and you start asking about population growth, they say, huh? Uh, I mean, the Italians are, are uh, in deep trouble, as are the Germans and others, because of lack of population growth. Um, but I, I, I'm going to take, I'm going to keep this in mind, and I think we should consider 
the issue of population uh, in some future surveys. Did either of you have any comment uh, to follow on Richard's uh, comment around ha relationship of wealth? I don't have anything health. to add to that. No, yeah. I'm thankful that he's. Yeah. Thank you. Let's. We've got two folks in the center, and then sir in back. We'll come to you in, in a moment. Thank you. My name is Guy Pfefferman, and after 40 years at the World Bank, I'm now retired, um, and I'm running an NGO that is building uh, management capacity in Africa. Um, my question relates to the survey. I was fascinated by it, and I was wondering if there are enough data points to be able to say anything about different responses by income levels, both within countries and maybe cutting across all the countries to see uh, what the poorest people are, are, are thinking and what the more affluent people are thinking. I think I'm interested in that. My second question is, is probably without <clears throat> an answer. I was puzzled that uh, Kenya, Tanzania, and a few other countries that, um, that are aid recipients uh, are among the countries where a sizable number of people say they don't want any more, they've got enough. People have done enough for them. Uh, what, what does that mean? Um. On your first point, we did um, begin to, to look at sort of demographic profiles within countries to see if there was um, important stories to be told. And certainly in individual countries, there's, there's um, uh, important additional uh, uh, points to be made. But overall, the um, overall points, even when you look at income level or look at you know, gender or some of the other things we looked at, really mimic the overall findings we presented today. So there's certainly some additional work we, we should do and get some details out. But in the general sense, we sort of find a very similar picture no matter what you're looking at. Um, and the question, I'm uh, sorry. Kenya, Tanzania. Oh, uh, Kenya and Tanzania. Yeah, go ahead. You want to talk about that? Oh, well, yeah, so what I want to clarify is the, the question was, are they doing uh, enough or not doing enough? And there's still majorities in both of those countries who said they can still do more. So I don't think it's a sense of judgment that, there's, that they don't want more. It's just that the sense that they actually um, give credit for wealthy nations for what they have done. Andrew, did you have to add? We have a hand here and a hand there. Yes. Hi, Julie Fisher, the Henry L. Stimson Center. Um, I'd like to follow on to that, actually, with a, a two-pronged question about possible disconnect between popular perception of donor aid and public health and uh, policy elites. Um, we've been working on a much more limited look at how policy elites are looking at global health and donor aid. Um, one of the issues is perception of effectiveness of donor aid, not just are they doing enough, but is it effective? And I wondered if any of your data address, you, you talked about public perception tracking fairly closely with the actual um, significance of the problem. But did you also look at how well that matched with donor programs or levels of donor commitment to those problems by nation? Okay. And then, sorry, second, just a little bit more of this. Uh, it, it, also interesting to me, following on to that with disconnect between popular perception and elite perception. Indonesia, for example, a country where it looks like the most people feel that donor countries are doing enough is, or, or a majority feel that, is a country that right now is witnessing the government withholding avian influenza samples mm -hmm. from sharing with the World Health Organization, possibly to their own detriment, to make a point about 
the distinction between developed and developing nations and access to public health and global health goods. So I wonder if you could also talk a little bit about that. Okay, hold for one second. Yes, right here. It's fascinating that you asked that question. My name is Daniel Singer. I'm uh, the Senior Medical Policy Advisor at the State Department, although my comments and my question don't reflect the policies of the U.S. government. <laughs> we have to say that. Um, section 4, you, you asked whether donor countries are doing enough to help poor countries. But apparently you didn't ask, and I would ask why not, whether people felt that poor countries are doing enough to help themselves, whether their governments are doing enough. I think the more interesting comparison would be the perception of is my poor country doing enough versus the donor. I think that the, the traditional model of aid is very much, you know, rich countries give things to poor countries, as, you know, in a package, in a present with a bow on the top, and that's supposed to fix things. And I think the, the more um, novel approach that people are taking is that really that doesn't do enough to invest the, the agents and the, and the governments of these poor countries in sustaining the, the success of those programs. So that it's really dependent on buy-in ownership um, from those poor countries. And, and in many instances, aid is not as successful because it lacks that. So Thank you. Let's take one more question and come back to Andrew and Molly. Hi, I'm Susan oh, Cannell. You. I'm a vice president at the Glover Park Group, although I'm really here out of a sense of personal interest. Um, I have sort of a two-part question. Uh, you talked about uh, the United States and, and other wealthy, wealthy countries feeling like they could do more. I forgot what the exact question was, but you know, could they do more, should they do more? Um, and that when you talk about things in a more specific sense, they say yes. I think it was 69%. So I sort of have a, a two-part question. One is, did you get at any in terms of why they feel that way? I mean, is it about it being the morally right thing to do? Is it that they think it's in the United States' best interest? Is it that, you know, they are fearful of global infectious diseases or, or something like that? So that's the first part of my question. And then my second uh, question is you said that, you know, responses to that, you know, Americans are not fond of foreign aid overall. They overestimate it, all that sort of stuff. What specific health problems and global health problems tend to move Americans. I mean, is it about HIV AIDS? Is it about clean water? Is it about maternal and child health? I mean, what are the, the issues that most concern and move Americans? Great, thank you. John, thank you very much. So we've got four different questions on aid effectiveness and pop popular versus policy elites. Are poor countries doing enough? Mm -hmm. And this question really about the American opinion climate on why do people feel positively about this, and what moves people to feel more positively? Uh, uh, let me at least start. Uh, what you have all just done is outlined absolutely where a next global health survey needs to go. I mean, as I said, we had um, designed the survey with a sense of getting at people's health priorities, and we had asked the one question about donor nations or about wealthy nations doing enough. We hadn't gone more in depth than that, and I think that you've outlined many of the things that you really do want to find out to really understand these issues um, better. Um, certainly in some of the other work we've done, the points that have been raised, that there's a sense that the governments themselves aren't doing enough, we certainly have, have heard that in other projects, and that's certainly something that we need to match and, and track onto this question of wealthy nations not doing enough. I think that's important. And the same thing with the effectiveness of AIDS. Again, uh, the effectiveness of the AIDS and uh, of aid and the donor nations. And again, we didn't do that in this project. In some of our earlier projects, we got a feel for that. And there is, you know, mixed feelings about effectiveness. Um, the questions about the U.S., um, 
I think that the U.S. public is moved by almost all public health priorities. I think that they certainly um, have a visceral response of wanting to help and, and finding it um, problematic that, uh, to be understated, that people of the world live without clean water or, you know, in, in um, dire circumstances. And so and when you do ask about specific policies, they really are quite um, uh, generous. I mean, um, Americans really do have a sense that they want to help and that, that there is a role for helping people of the world. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I think that the, specific, the more specific the issue is, the more likely Americans are to respond. Look at the tremendous response to Indonesia, which sort of gets back to your question. I think one of the reasons why the Ind Indonesians may have been responding that way may be to some extent the ha a halo effect uh, surrounding uh, the aid to the tsunami victims. I think many Indonesians remember that uh, and uh, think well of the West, and in particular think well of the United States. One of the few success stories for the United States uh, in terms of its public image was the fact that between 2003 and, and post-tsunami aid, the ratings of the U.S. went from 15 percent to almost 40 percent in response to, uh, in response to uh, tsunami aid. Even in Pakistan, where it's really hard to move the needle with respect to the United States, uh, we saw some uptick in, as uh, Pakistanis were aware of uh, what Amer America did with respect to the uh, earthquake victims. I guess that was last year. I get this a little bit confused, the timing a little bit confused. But I, I think that may explain um, that may explain some of the, the the nature of that Indonesian response. Great, thank you. We have Alan here. There's a hand in the back. John, we're going to take the four quick comments and questions, and we're going to come back and close. So, Alan, the gentleman there, John, and Howard. Thank you. I'm Alan Moore. I'm an associate at CSIS, also a fellow at the Global Health Council. I want to push a little more on how Americans feel. Um, and, the, and my question is not, I think we all accept the fact that Americans and just about everybody else says we should do more. Then, but I've seen some data, it's not in this study, but I know you guys are aware, I assume you're aware of it, saying, okay, if you want to do more, what would you do less of to pay for it? Or would, what taxes would you raise? Or would you deficit spend? And, and so, so I'm I'm looking for the the broader willingness of Americans to to make a decision in a political environment, if you will, of what they would support in order to do more. Thank you. Uh, in the rear, Jay Wolfson, University of South Florida. Could you elaborate a little bit on what you expect to be the reasons for the responses from Germany and Sweden, where things are just dandy? Is there a complacence that's developed? Uh, and have, or are people concerned that things are going to get worse, even though they're about as good as they can get? Right here. Uh, good morning. My name's James Hill. I'm with uh, the Pan American Health Organization. And two principles that guide us are equity in health and Pan Americanism. And I was very struck uh, in regards to uh, three relatively wealthy countries, I think it was uh, Mexico, Chile, and Brazil, where access of health care 
was a major concern, and these are relatively wealthy countries. And, and I, I, it's interesting because Latin America is one of the most inequitable regions in the world. And as we've seen from a lot of polls, uh, United States, 18% is consecrated to health. The level of dissatisfaction is very high. Where in Europe, they spend half as much, and in, in the dissatisfaction is quite high. So I, I, I'm just interested to know, uh, do you have also demographic breakdowns in terms of access to health care? Was this mainly from, from more youthful population that might be more dissatisfied or, or more from the, the older end of the population? Thank you. Last question up here. Right. Harvey Sloan, Eurasian Medical Education Program. Uh, have you thought about interviewing the elected leadership in these countries and whether their perception of the need is corres corresponds to what the public does? Secondly, it seems to me that the public health global initiative could become very paternalistic if your elected leadership is not included and it is the priority that they bring to the table and want you to do. Thank you. Uh, on the question of interviewing um, leadership, uh, that is something that we've considered over time, not something that we've done. I think it would be a very, very interesting thing to do. Um, on the issue of uh, the trade-off, what are Americans willing to uh, do less of when they respond to, oh, we should do more of this, you know, I don't think that that people think in those terms. They think about what, what are the right things to do, and then they have an agenda, a little list of things that, we, that they think the government spends too much of, and uh, the, they're kind of independent of one another. So I don't think asking questions uh, framed the way policymakers have to uh, think about it in terms of trade-offs uh, would, would be all that productive. But the polls are full of, uh, of uh, what the public thinks we spend too much on. Um, I'll, and I'll leave it at that, Molly. Um, I would just say just to follow up on that. I mean, willingness to pay is, is just about one of the hardest things um, to get at in public opinion research. It doesn't matter what topic. And we spend a, a fair amount of our time at the foundation doing um, U.S. health policy and trying to figure out what people are willing to give up in order to meet their health policy goals of covering all the uninsured or whatever. It's a, it's a tough thing to get at, and I think Andy's right. I don't think people think about it in the budgetary sort of trade-off ways that policymakers need to think about. So um, what you know what we often say is, is public opinion tells you where the public is, but you need leadership to actually get you there, and you need leadership to talk about where we need to give up or to think differently about in order to meet some of the public um, the public's priorities and some of their goals. Um, on the equity and health issue in Latin America, we can certainly look um, at those demographic breaks uh, again and to see if there is any sort of differential, and, and we'd be happy to do that for you if you want to um, talk to us afterwards. Um, and Germany and Sweden being happy. Beats us. <laughs> I mean, the Swedes, are, the Swedes are happy about everything. <laughs> We've gotten to the end of our time here, and we're very grateful. This has really been an, uh, an exceptionally rich conversation. And thank you so much for coming and sharing all this with us. So on behalf of everyone, thank you. Thank you.